the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, November 5th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Germany's prime minister visits China. 185 UN nations condemn America's Cuba embargo. Zelensky says that 4.5 million Ukrainians face electricity shortages. Alcohol-induced deaths rose by 30% in 2020. Trump drops a strong hint about running in 2024. Biden campaigns ahead of the U.S. midterms in California and promotes tech legislation. Elon Musk begins major layoffs at Twitter. The White House accuses North Korea of sending weapons to Russia. A French member of parliament is suspended for return to Africa remarks. And FIFA says the World Cup should be about football, not politics. In our top story, Germany's Olaf Scholz meets China's Xi Jinping. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, DW, Guardian, Reuters, and BBC News. Leading a high-level business delegation to China, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz met with Chinese President Xi Jinping on Friday, marking the first visit by the leader of a G7 nation to China since the start of COVID in 2019. This visit to its main trading partner comes as Berlin faces challenges at home, with the deep recession looming and the need to bolster its export markets as its ties with Russia deteriorate amid the Ukraine war. At the top of the agenda for the meeting was boosting bilateral economic relations. However, Schultz's desire to strike deals with Beijing has drawn domestic and international criticism as tensions mount between the People's Republic of China and the West on issues including Taiwan and human rights. Regarding the Ukraine war, Xi and Schultz expressed their mutual opposition to the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons, with the latter reportedly urging the Chinese leader to use his influence on Russia to bring an end to the invasion of Ukraine. Talks also touched on climate change, COVID vaccines, and reciprocal market access amid German claims that China seals off many sectors. In addition, Schultz stated that any change in the status quo of Taiwan, quote, must be peaceful or by mutual consent. Though Schultz vowed a values-led foreign policy and a new approach to China, many in Germany are weary, in part due to a controversial agreement to sell a stake in the port of Hamburg to a Chinese company. All right, those are the facts. And on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. So here are the narrative spins, starting with the anti-China narrative from Washington Post. Schultz's visit to Beijing comes as a bit of a shock across the continent. There is broad consensus among the political leadership of Europe about the need to rethink ties with China, and Schultz appears to be out of step. This isn't only a concern across Europe, but also in Washington. With Chinese aggression on the rise, now is the time for the West to present a united front. And Global Times gives us a pro-China narrative. Schultz's visit to Beijing is much appreciated and needed, especially against the backdrop of significant turbulence and strife around the world. It's good that the leaders of the two major powers can have a face-to-face meeting about bilateral relations and future economic cooperation and exchange views on heated topics. It sends a much-needed signal of stability to the international community. We also have a cynical narrative on this story coming from Politico. This is an economic move. Having lost two pillars of Germany's economic success story, cheap Russian energy and low security spending, Schultz has no choice but to guarantee that its third pillar, good business relations with China, remains. 
The chancellor's visit to Beijing is paramount to German industry, which is about to start an investment boom in China, moving production there from Germany. And the nerds are speaking up on this story as well, saying that there's a 50% chance that Germany will elect a new chancellor by October of 2026. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. The UN votes to condemn the United States embargo of Cuba. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Washington Post, Reuters, Independent, and Al Jazeera. On Thursday, the UN General Assembly voted for the 30th year in a row to condemn the U.S. economic embargo on Cuba. 185 countries voted in favor of the motion, with only the U.S. and Israel opposing it and Brazil and Ukraine abstaining. UN General Assembly resolutions are neither binding nor enforceable, but they reflect global perspectives and have given Cuba an annual platform to highlight the isolation of the U.S. and its decades-long efforts to punish the island. The trade embargo was first imposed following the Cuban Revolution and has remained largely unchanged with the decades-old dispute between Havana and Washington showing little sign of detente despite some moments of goodwill. Before the vote, Cuba's foreign minister Bruno Rodriguez stated that the U.S. has escalated the siege around the country since 2019 to inflict the biggest possible damage on Cuban families. He estimated that the Cuban economy lost $6.35 billion during the first 14 months of the Biden administration. Tensions between the nations eased in 2016 as the Obama administration restored relations, but Trump returned to a hardline approach. The Biden administration argues that economic penalties are a response to human rights abuses committed during a crackdown on July 2021 protests. U.S. political counselor John Kelly told the U.N. General Assembly after the vote that while the U.S. condemns Cuba's government, the people of the U.S. donate a significant amount of humanitarian goods to the Cuban people and are among Cuba's main trading partners. Scott gives us the facts on that story. Now let's look at the spins. An establishment critical narrative is coming from countercurrents. In the name of promoting human rights, the U.S. has blocked the Cuban economy from generating billions of dollars, which is why the entire world voted for this resolution. If the U.S. cared about Cubans and their prosperity, it would open economic relations with Havana, just as it does with other countries with poor human rights records. And we have a pro-establishment narrative from the Boston Globe. The U.S. embargo on Cuba is a reasonable response to one of the most brutal regimes in the world, which has constantly violated human rights. Unlike critics' claims, the embargo doesn't affect Cuba's freedom to trade with the rest of the world, nor does it prevent Cuba from importing goods from the U.S. Cuba's tragedy stems from its dictatorship, not from U.S. trade relations. Scott, all I can say is close, but still no cigar. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame. That is a shame. Have you ever had a real Cuban? Never. I mean, I I mean, I guess there's some level of trust I have to have that the real Cuban I had was a real Cuban. I'm no cigar aficionado. Turning our attention to day 254 of the tragedy in Ukraine, as Zelensky says 4.5 million Ukrainians are facing electricity shortages. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Institute for the Study of War, U.S. News and World Report, Pravda, the office of the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, and Ukraine Forum. In his nightly address on Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky revealed that an estimated 4.5 million people across Kyiv, its outskirts, 
and nine other regions were facing rolling blackouts in the country. He also used the address to call on Ukraine's energy providers to be more transparent about planned blackouts to help tackle perceptions of unfairness. Addressing the energy companies, Zelensky said, quote, Please be more active in explaining to people when and why you disconnect this or that street, this or that district. Now is the time for such micro-communications. People have a right to know. He added, if someone stays without electricity for 8 to 10 hours and everything is connected, including street lighting across the street, then this is definitely unfair. Meanwhile, during the second of two days of talks, foreign ministers from the G7 countries reportedly agreed on the need for a coordination mechanism to help Ukraine repair, restore, and defend its critical energy and water infrastructure. Quote, that's something that will be a core focus of this group in the days and weeks ahead, an unnamed State Department official told reporters on Friday. Elsewhere, the latest prisoner swap to date took place between Russia and Ukraine on Thursday, when the nations exchanged 107 service members each. Russian sources said that 65 of the service members released on their side were from Donetsk and Luhansk, while Ukrainian sources said 74 of those released on their side had been captured in the Avastol steelworks plant in Maripol. On the ground, Russia's primary efforts continued in Donetsk, while missile and rocket strikes continued to be reported in Sumy, Zaporizhia, and Mykolaiv. Ukrainian efforts, meanwhile, targeted the southern Kherson region. Ukrainian officials reported that eight civilians were killed and 14 more were injured in Russian attacks on Donetsk in the last 24 hours, adding that the body of a civilian who had been killed previously was also discovered. They added that one civilian was injured in Kharkiv and one in Kherson. In addition, pro-Russia sources reported that one person was killed and two more were injured in Ukrainian attacks in Kherson, while one person was injured in Donetsk. Thanks for those facts, Eric. PBS NewsHour returns to its long-running anti-Russia narrative. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And National Security Archive gives us a pro-Russian narrative. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. We've also got a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 2% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukraine conflict before the year 2023. And in health news, the CDC reports that alcohol-induced deaths rose 30% in 2020. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Associated Press, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and The Guardian. According to a new Center for Disease Control and Prevention report focusing on more than a dozen types of deaths directly caused by drinking, the alcohol-related death rate in the U.S. rose nearly 30% in the first year of the COVID pandemic. The CDC previously reported that such deaths had increased in 2020, and 2021, but the study released Friday provided more details, including the increase from 39,000 deaths in 2019 to 52,000 in 2020. Other studies conducted in the fall of 2020 found that binge drinking increased during the pandemic, with a Journal of the American Medical Association showing the average frequency of drinking went up a total of 14% over the previous year and 41% for women. 
The rate of such deaths typically increased by at most 7% each year over the past couple of decades, but in 2020, they were up 26% to 13 deaths per 100,000 Americans, the highest recorded rate in 40 years. Alcohol-related deaths are still 2.5 times more common for men than women, but rose for both in 2020, including a 42% jump in women aged 35 to 44. The rate remained the highest, however, for those aged 55 through 64. Another Journal of the American Medical Association report published earlier this week, which included deaths more widely linked to drinking through causes such as car accidents, suicide, falls, and cancers, found that with the broader category, more than 140,000 people die from alcohol annually. It also estimated that one in eight deaths for U.S. adults aged 20 to 64 were alcohol-related. Scott, thank you for the facts of this story. Two spins emerging, beginning with Narrative A, coming from CNN. The pandemic was a traumatic event, and those types of events always cause an increase in drinking. Combine this with easy access to and the social acceptability of alcohol, along with the overuse of anxiety-provoking social media and the internet, and you have a huge crisis that can only be addressed with better government policies in terms of screenings and treatments. Narrative B comes from the World Socialist website. It's criminal government policies like forcing workers into COVID-infested workplaces and children and teachers into schools too soon that have brought us to this point. A moral and scientific solution is needed to help the working class defeat America's epidemic of addiction and take power back from the corporations and politicians that put wealth above safety. In our next story, Trump drops a strong hint about a 2024 White House run. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Axios, USA Today, and Business Insider. Speaking at the first of four midterm rallies in five days, former President Trump stated that he will very, very, very probably do it again, referring to a presidential run in 2024. Speaking to a crowd on Thursday in Sioux City, Iowa, Trump said, quote, get ready. That's all I'm saying to supporters. He was campaigning for Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who is in a close race against Democratic challenger Mike Franken. Trump stated that his probable desire to run again was based on the need to, quote, make our country successful and safe and glorious. Trump's inner circle has yet to comment, and the timing may hinge on the outcomes of specific midterm races next week. Trump also once again endorsed same-day voting and paper ballots. He claimed that these measures would, quote, save a lot of money. He continued to claim that he was victorious in the 2020 election, stating that, quote, I ran twice, I won twice. He's currently fighting multiple investigations and court cases surrounding his handling of government records, his alleged role in trying to overturn the 2020 election, and his business practices in New York. The Guardian brings us a left narrative spin on this story. When it comes to a 2024 Trump run for the White House, it's a question of when and not if. Being in legal jeopardy, his desire to be president once again may come from a desire to avoid or complicate the multiple investigations that surround him. Whatever the reasons, American democracy must brace for Trump's anti-democratic onslaught. And Gateway Pundit gives us a pro-Trump narrative. Anticipation is building whether Trump makes the call right before the midterms or right after. The Democrats don't have a viable candidate who can beat Trump in 2024, and their only chance is through the corrupt Department of Justice, which will seek to bring the former president down at any opportunity. 
The engine is starting to crank on the Trump train. Choo-choo! <laughs> that is a official thing, according I know. to what you're saying. Yeah, it is. We have a narrative C on this story as well, coming from the Washington Examiner. The Democratic Party is floundering. However, the upcoming red wave should be consolidated with a leader who will not be a continued potential danger to the GOP. It's time to pass the Republican torch to fresh candidates who can take Trump's values to the next level with more stability and less self-destructive tendencies. Once again, a nerd narrative coming from this story saying that there's an 80% chance that Donald J. Trump will run for the office of president of the United States in 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Trying to take politics out of this as, as, as much as possible. But if you zoom out and kind of look at this as like a historical thing, this Trump candidacy and presidency and his whole you know, last decade is really one of the most remarkable political stories like in the history of our country. It's, it's crazy. Barnum and Bailey's Circus. The greatest show on the Earth. The show on Earth. Yeah. I friend. feel like the Ringling Brothers don't get their due. Everyone talks about P.T. Barnum, but yeah. the Ringling Brothers are involved with that. What, what, what happened to them? The Ringling Brothers hopped the Trump train and they got lost forever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the lack of train, the, 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 the demise of railroads in this country may have portended the, the fall of... Uh, Democracy. <laughs> <laughs> And in more news from the midterms, Biden campaigns in California while promoting tech legislation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Reuters, and Market Screener. President Biden will visit the Carlsbad, California communications firm Viasat Incorporated Friday to tout the Democrats' push to boost domestic manufacturing of semiconductors and reduce reliance on foreign manufacturing. In a preview of his visit, the White House said Biden will laud three pieces of his key legislation, the Chips and Science Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and the Inflation Reduction Act. With polls showing Republicans gaining momentum for the House and possibly the Senate, the preview said Biden will accuse the GOP of ripping away the progress we've made, raising costs for working people, and putting Medicare and Social Security on the chopping block. Biden will be joined by Democratic Representative Mike Levin, a two-term congressman from the San Diego area who faces a tight race with former San Juan Capistrano Mayor Brian Marriott. Biden headlined a rally for Levin in Oceanside, California on Thursday. In his visit to Viasat, Biden is also expected to praise the company for hiring 700 veterans, around 10% of its workforce, as he frames the internet provider within his technology-focused legislation. With Biden's approval hovering around 40% in the latest Reuters-Ipsis poll, he also appealed to young voters in New Mexico on Thursday as he looks to highlight Democratic initiatives, including his effort to cancel student loan debt. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Three spins emerging, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from Breitbart. With Republicans showing gains in the polls nationwide, Democrats are desperately sending their unpopular party leader to campaign for incumbent Democrats. Even in Southern California, where liberal elites have begun to shift the region from red to blue, Representative Mike Levin faces a potential loss due to his party's woke social policies and economic agenda. Biden's campaigning won't help. And the Los Angeles Times gives us a Democratic narrative. Biden knows the importance of retaining control of the House, which is why he's campaigning for Representative Mike Levin in California to protect Medicare, Social Security, and veterans' benefits. It's important for the president to showcase representatives like Levin who are up against Republicans who want to rip all of that away. And we do have a nerd narrative saying there's a 55% chance that Republicans will win both the House and Senate 
in the 2022 midterm elections, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. More news coming from Twitter as Elon Musk begins a wide-scale layoff. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNN, Verge, Bloomberg, Business Insider, and Yahoo Finance. Elon Musk began mass layoffs at Twitter on Friday, sharply reducing the social media platform's workforce. Employees began reporting being locked out of the social media platform's information systems on Thursday night and Friday morning. Per a reported internal memo, Twitter management informed employees it will be reducing our global workforce. The cuts will reportedly affect roughly half of Twitter's workforce, around 3,700 jobs, in an effort to cut expenses following Musk's $44 billion takeover. Expenses at Twitter have increased 31% year over year. The company reported a decline in revenue of $1.18 billion in its final quarter as a public company. Twitter is undergoing major changes under Musk, including changing its verification process to integrate paid subscriptions, re-establishing the short video app, Vine, that Twitter shut down years ago, and reviewing content moderation practices. All right, we've got right and left matching narratives on this story. Let's start with the right narrative spin from Fox News. Musk's acquisition is a real opportunity for Twitter to become free of biased censorship. With the billionaire entrepreneur at the helm, he can retain the general code of conduct to fight deceitful foreign influences, while also allowing the marketplace of ideas to flourish, freeing it from the so-called fact-checkers with ill intentions. And we counter that with a left narrative coming from DW. While billionaires like Elon Musk may have the money to buy and influence social media platforms, they don't possess the character to manage them properly. Musk's Twitter history reveals an erratic personality with the potential to vastly alter the market with a single tweet simply to advance his self-interest. With Twitter set to have no barriers to what can and cannot be said, the app is looking like a disaster waiting to happen. You a Twitter user, Eric? I'm not. Never have been. Yeah, I, I, I occasionally go on Twitter to, to, to seek what a certain person has said, but I don't, you know, have a feed or anything like that. I, I find I waste too much time on that stuff when I, when I get into it. It's just, it's, I don't have that much time to waste. The White House claims North Korea is covertly sending weapons to Russia. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, CNN, New York Post, PBS NewsHour, and Seoul's NK News. The Biden administration stated on Wednesday that Pyongyang has covertly shipped a significant number of artillery shells to aid the Russian war effort in Ukraine. A statement from National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby claimed that the resources have been sent through indirect routes, including via North Africa and the Middle East. Kirby added that it was unknown if the artillery munitions had already reached Russia, but stressed that this shipment wouldn't alter the course of the war. The accusation comes around two months after the U.S. intelligence community claimed that Russia was purchasing millions of rockets and artillery shells from North Korea for use on the battlefield. Kirby didn't provide any details on how Russia was paying for the artillery shells, how many shells were being shipped, or what evidence the U.S. had that Pyongyang was sending weapons to Moscow. While U.N. resolutions ban North Korea from exporting to and importing from other countries, the nation's ties with Russia have deepened since the West has distanced itself from the Kremlin over the invasion of Ukraine. In July, Pyongyang recognized the independence of the Russia-backed territories of Donetsk and Luhansk. Addressing earlier claims that it was supporting Moscow's war effort, Pyongyang denied it was exporting arms to Russia, but argued that it had a lawful right to do so. 
Those were the facts, and we have three spins emerging from this story, and Fox News gives us the first one, which is a Republican narrative. The Biden administration's failed domestic and international policy has pushed North Korea and Russia into an alliance that now threatens the security of the U.S. Despite the risks to America, Biden has promoted war games that could lead to unintended and undesirable confrontation on the world stage. Counter that with the Democratic narrative from Business Insider. The fact that Pyongyang is providing weapons to aid Russia's war effort in Ukraine demonstrates the success of U.S. sanctions in isolating and undermining Moscow. As Russian forces falter, the Kremlin is resorting to the support of other weak pariah states, such as North Korea, to try and plug gaps in munition supplies. The nerd narrative states that there is a 10% chance that North Korea will send more than 100 troops to Ukraine without Ukrainian consent before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, a French member of parliament is suspended after a return to Africa remark. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sterling, BBC News, Al Jazeera, DW, Euro, and Guardian. The French parliament has issued a 15-day suspension for member of parliament Grégoire de Fournat, a member of the far-right National Rally Party, who appeared to yell, quote, Return to Africa as a black MP discussed migrants. While Carlos Martins Bilongo was speaking out about finding a port for 234 migrants recently rescued at sea, the official account cited De Forna saying he should go back to Africa, with De Forna claiming he said they, the migrants. The two phrases sound virtually identical in French. Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne urged the assembly to sanction De Forna and Belongo, who was born in France, called the moment shameful. National Rally Party leader Marine Le Pen defended her MP, saying, quote, The controversy created by our political opponents will not deceive the French. The National Rally Party has historically been accused of making racist, anti-Semitic, and anti-Islamic remarks. Though Le Pen has recently sought to soften her party's hardline stance on immigration to appeal to a broader voter base. President Macron's Renaissance Party commented and refused to attend further parliamentary sessions until the council imposes a, quote, heavy penalty on De Forna. After his remarks, De Forna apologized to Bilongo for any misunderstanding, though he rejected calls to resign. Okay, we have a left narrative spin on this story coming from France 24. De Forna's penalty is the only just course of action. Le Pen's far-right party cannot get away with abjectly racist comments, and he deserves full censure for his disgraceful behavior. And a right narrative comes from Le Figaro. If a clearly misinterpreted comment is all it takes to induce a penalty, many other MPs should prepare to receive the same punishment. The 15-day suspension was issued only once before, and now the left has decided to use it over a simple misunderstanding. This is unfair cancel culture. Our final story, FIFA says to focus on football at the upcoming World Cup. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Sky News, Reuters, and Euronews. In a letter to all 32 teams due to compete at the World Cup in Qatar beginning November 20th, FIFA, the world soccer governing body, told them to now focus on football as the host country faces criticism for its human rights record. FIFA President Gianni Infantino and Secretary General Fatma Samoura 
asked for the sport not to be dragged into every ideological or political battle that exists, as some teams have protested Qatar's alleged treatment of LGBTQ plus people and migrant workers who constructed World Cup facilities. The letter doesn't address a request by eight European nations for their captains to wear one love multicolored armbands at the World Cup, with both England and Wales already stating that they would defy any ban by the agency. Amnesty International's head of economic and social justice stated that FIFA should finally start tackling the serious human rights issues rather than brushing them under the carpet and compensate migrant workers in Qatar 440 million U.S. dollars, matching the World Cup prize money. Other teams have also engaged in protest, with Australia participating in a video condemning Qatar, Denmark wearing black jerseys to mourn migrant deaths, and the U.S. backing calls for the compensation fund. World Cup organizers have said that all are welcome no matter their sexual orientation or background, though also warn against public displays of affection. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. And CNN is giving us the first spin. It's a pro-establishment narrative. With billions of people around the world about to tune into the World Cup, we should call out Qatar's hosting of the event for what it really is. With LGBTQ plus people treated like criminals and labor practices being compared to modern slavery, Qatar's winning bid to host the event was not from merit, but rather corruption. The entire global community has a responsibility to criticize the event to save the integrity of the sport. And Doha News brings us the establishment critical narrative. The mostly Western-centric critique of the World Cup is an unfair smear campaign. Qatar has already dispersed $350 million to workers last year alone and has doubled up on efforts to protect employees. While soccer fans are likely to be exploring Qatar for the first time, they should know that its people are very welcoming. As this year is the first World Cup hosted by an Arab nation, respect for differing cultures is a must. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, October 5th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Want more information on Improve the News? Visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.